What was the cross made out of? Wood. Step back into the Old Testament. What were the sacrifices that were put on the altar burned with? Wood. Perfect, unblemished, spotless lambs burned with fire, roasted with fire before God and would send up a pleasing aroma. Now here's Jesus Christ in the New Testament being burned alive in the wrath of God on a piece of wood. Beautiful continuity. Perfect symmetry with the Old Testament. Fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Ushering in the New Covenant. <laughs> he wanted to do this. Think about that. Jesus literally wanted to do this for us. That's why it's good. He wanted to provide a way for sinners, even those like Saul, listen, Saul, who tried to literally murder Christians, hunt them down, throw them in prison, and beat them for fun. Remember, he held the coats of, 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 of the people who literally stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the early portion of Acts. He wanted to kill Christians. And Jesus laid down his life for someone like that. A murderer and a god he wanted to draw people like that, people like us, into a saving relationship with himself. And this is why it's good. This is why it's Good Friday. This is why it's beautiful and amazing and wonderful. We continue seeing the kind of the unfolding events in the story, the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Now, listen, let's go back. I'll go outside of uh, the Bible for just a second, but we'll look at a rabbinic Judaism, uh, Jewish tradition concerning the temple veil itself. Here's how they would test a single sheet of a multi-sheet veil that would literally block light out. It would hook a team of oxen up to one side. I think it was more than five, if I'm not mistaken. They would hook a team of oxen up to the other side and they would have them pull apart. And if that one sheet failed, they would burn it and start over. Now this temple veil was made of sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet. Most people thought it was about 18 inches thick. 18 inches thick of sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet. Why? Because you're going to have to have something pretty thick to block out the manifest glory of God. Pretty thick. Considering Moses' face shone when he came off of Mount Sinai from the reflected glory of God. And here we see something that we know, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, close to 30, 30 plus feet tall, ripped in half from top to bottom. And team of oxen couldn't do that hitched to each other with one single sheet. This was an act of God. No man did this. It was a miracle. See a great earthquake with rocks being split, dead in tombs. They're coming back to life. They're entering Jerusalem. They're walking, talking, and alive. And here, in this final portion, is one of the most beautiful examples of redemption that I think you see in God. Think about what this man was involved in. Look at the soldier. Okay.
Look at this Roman centurion, understand, he would have been an enlisted man, a leader of 100 enlisted soldiers. And he did not get this by uh, money, uh, by social connection, or by political advancement. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we thank you that nearly 2,000 years ago, Father, Christ accomplished on the cross what was absolutely impossible for any man to do. God, and then He perfectly walked out the plan that You laid before Him in power, in might, in love. Father, in faithfulness to Your Word. God, let us do the same tonight as we honor You, God, as we praise You, as we worship You. Lord, it's in Your name we pray, in accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. If You would, please rise with us and worship. Jesus suffered and 
change it someday for a crown. If you will, please be seated. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to be starting in verses 45 through 46, and we'll also be reading 50 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielding up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Bow with me. God, help us to see Christ. Lord, and pull away from the veneer of this world. Oh, it's trivial things. Help us to see Christ and Christ crucified and help our focus, Lord, to be upon Him. God, that You would do a mighty work in this community, Lord, that You would set fire to this place, spiritually speaking, God, with people who love You and people who care about Your Word and people who advance the kingdom of heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in faith in You and Your Word. Lord God, it is in your perfect and holy and precious and mighty and wonderful name we pray. In accordance with your will we ask. Amen. This is a beautiful account. And um, when I look at this text, there's so much more. There's always, every time we, we grab Scripture and we start spinning it around, we realize that this diamond of Scripture, every time the light comes in, it's kind of, maybe I can't really have a visual representation right now, but sometimes if you'll notice over here, when the sun will shine through, especially on Sunday mornings, and, and, and when the clouds kind of come in between the window and the sun, it'll be dark, and then all of a sudden you'll see this new glorious hue come through from the sun shining through a stained glass window. And it's the exact same thing with Scripture when we turn it, when we analyze it, when we look at it. We realize, we realize in and of itself it is perfect. Why? It's the Word of God. God's perfect. Everything He says is perfect, true, right, and holy. But secondly, we realize how finite we are. How little we are. How foolish we are. And how incomprehensibly great the Word of God is. So my hope today is that we will take the, the diamond that is this story of Christ on the cross and we will spin it a little bit more. And we'll be able to see perhaps elements of Christ's uh, victory over death and hell on the cross in a special way. Look back with me in Matthew 27, verses 45-46. through 46. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic, meaning, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's my hope today. Uh, my hope and my prayers that as we look at the Christ together, that it will change us in some way. That should constantly be our desire as we open Scripture up, is to look at it, to see uh, Christ, to focus on Christ, to see what He has done, and to desire to look more and more like Him. That should be our intent as Christians. So my prayer today is that for those of you who are Christians, that you grow closer to Christ, and for those perhaps listening or wherever that maybe do not yet believe, my hope and my prayer is that you will announce with this centurion, truly this is the Son of God. That's my hope and my prayer. So all too often when I look at, at, at almost any sermon on the crucifixion, Good Friday, uh, everyone uses the same text and they usually focus on the exact same thing. And so my hope and my desire is every time we meet, we talk about things like the Lord's Supper, we talk about Christian living, we talk about the cross, we talk about the resurrection, that we look at texts that are often ignored, but shed great light on what's actually happening. So I would argue that most people focus on the physical rather than the theological or the spiritual torments that Christ experienced on the cross. Think about it. They will cite the pain of the beatings, the pain of the whip, the pain of the nails, the pain of the crown of thorns, etc. And understand me when I say this, that these things were necessary, absolutely, completely, and totally, vitally necessary for the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures uh, and the prophecies concerning the death of Jesus. But one thing that most of those sermons lack is on the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Here it is. And his active obedience to the will of God. That's what most of those sermons totally bypass as they focus simply on the physical sufferings of Christ. So please remember with me that this was not something that Jesus was trying to avoid. We, we, we looked at it last Sunday when we talked about the triumphal entry. He knew, he knew before he went into Jerusalem where the, the donkey and the colt of that donkey was. It was in a different village. He sent his people out to go grab it and prepare it for him so that he might ride that donkey into Jerusalem. And then we realize when we read the Old Testament, oh, Zechariah 9.9, I believe. Here comes your Savior riding on the colt of a donkey. So he did this on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Nobody beat him up, drugged him, dragged him into Jerusalem, and then forced him to get on the cross. He did this willingly and willfully. Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Acts 4, 27-28 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, here it is, to do, and this is speaking of God, to do whatever your hand and your purpose, God, predestined to occur. Again, this is pointing to the fact that this was not an accident. So let's think about this logically for just a second as we look at the text. The triune God of the universe was uh, in perfect agreement in and with Himself before the foundation of the earth was laid. Because if we serve a perfect God, that means He knew that sin was going to come about. Which means that He already had a plan for how to deal with it. Because guess what? All of this worked together for His eternal redemptive purposes. Think about this for a second. We've talked just logically. Before anything apart from God existed, was there sin? 
No, there was no sin. Before anything was created, before there was sin, was there any way for God to demonstrate His mercy? Also, no. So think about how beautiful that is. That though there was sin, God chose to send His Son to be a sacrifice to substitute what we should have gone through and dealt with, the eternal weight of the wrath of God. And He did that for this purpose, to bring Himself glory, but also to make Himself known in different aspects and attributes of the eternal Godhead known, i.e. the fullness of His love in a way that we can't even comprehend now. And when we're glorified and we're with God in heaven, I would beg to say that we will still not be able to fully comprehend it. In addition to that, think about the mercy that was shown to us on the cross. If there was not sin, there could be no mercy. Hmm. Remember, Jesus walked into this willingly. His fear, though. His fear. Think about His fear. We know He was fully man and fully God, but think about His fear. What was it? Why did He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why did He do that? I can tell you first and foremost, most pastors, most teachers, most preachers, and most churches would say, well, it's because He was about to get beat up. The Romans were about to whip Him, scourge Him, uh, pull His beard out, uh, beat Him to the point where you couldn't really even recognize Him as a human being, hammer a bunch of thorns into His head, and publicly parade Him around while mocking Him. I guarantee you, and I will, I will back this up with Christian history, church history, theologians from the time of the early church fathers all the way up into recent, at least the ones who are orthodox. Jesus Christ was not scared of the Roman whip. Jesus Christ was not scared of the cross. He was not scared of the nails. And He was not scared of the beatings. He was terrified of the wrath of God. Luke 22, 41-44. And he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Listen, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down upon the ground. What was in the cup? What was in the cup? Now we can tell Old Testament and New Testament that what was in the cup was the wrath of the Holy God. The Holy God of the universe. And when we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament when He says, look, I'm going to make you drink the cup of My wrath, of My anger, of My indignation. This was not some trivial statement that God was saying. No, you were about to have the one who is in charge of everything, who has created all of the known universe, come against you. And Jesus Christ knew that perfectly, exactly what it entailed. So I would argue very definitively that it had nothing to do with the Romans. It had everything to do with His Father. He was absolutely terrified of the weight that He was about to stand under because He knew what was coming. <laughs> Think about that. We look back at that text for a second. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. 
An angel came and strengthened him. And though an angel came and strengthened him, what does it say? He was still so fearful, he sweat drops of blood. I can tell you personally that I, I, I well, no, I can't tell you personally. I would, I would, I would, I would think that if an angel came and he strengthened me, man, I'd feel like I could fight an army by myself with with Q-tips and win. All right, I, I think that I would, I would, I would feel mightily uplifted if a literal physical angel showed up and said, "Hey, I came from God. I came to strengthen you." Though Christ had that. He sweat drops of blood. <laughs> For the sake of, of time and another study, it is simply what's in the cup, the wrath of God. That's it. It's the wrath of God against sin and against sinners. It is the immeasurably heavy and pressing anger of God against wickedness, evil, and unbelief. Look with me in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We talk about that verse over and over and over again. Why? Because it's literally just a few verses past John 3.16. And everybody knows that one. Most people who are not even Christians know that one, but I guarantee that very few Christians know John 3.36. Very few. Here's the thing, I want to know the full spectrum of what God has to say. Remember what Paul exhorts Timothy to do. Uh, preach and teach the Scriptures, right? All of them? Well, Timothy's looking at Paul. Can I just preach the, the light stuff, Paul? Can I just preach about the stuff that maybe he's really happy and you know, we could talk about some future prophecy and something cool you know, with the recreation of the new earth? No, everything. You have to preach it all. You have to talk about it all. You have to know it all. Because if you don't, you will get this really small image of who I am. God, creator of the universe. And you will make me into an idol because the God that you create me into be will not be the God of the Bible. The God of the Holy Scriptures. Guess what that is? Violation of commandment number one. Because you just created an idol if you attribute to God something that He is not, or you lower or diminish any one of His characteristics, qualities, or attributes. I want you to see that this is why Jesus cried out these words in Aramaic. The first two are actually in Hebrew. Uh, the, the rest of the, the sentence is in, is, is in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Or uh, if it was all in Aramaic, it would be Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which literally means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So first, let's just assert that this fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Secondly, look at the perfect, unblemished, sinless, spotless Christ absorbing the wrath of God against the sin of uh, the people whom ultimately he will draw into himself. So the Bible says, what greater love exists than this? That a man lay down his life for another, or he lay down his life for his friends. This is why Jesus asked, why God forsook him? Think about that. Because he was perfect, Jesus was perfect, and he did nothing but perfectly obey and perfectly love and perfectly worship God. 
But in that pivotal three hours on the cross, remember from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which would be about noon to 3 p.m., the supernatural darkness that we know descended upon the earth, and and I would argue, because we can actually argue this uh, astrologically, all right, the, the Jews operate off of a lunar calendar, so we know definitively 100% without a shadow of a doubt that this was not a solar or a lunar eclipse. Not at all in any way. This was a supernatural, unexplainable, unknown darkness that descended upon the earth. Now I would argue that this Darkness that descended upon the earth actually encompassed every single bit of creation, not just the earth. Every molecule, every subatomic particle, every planet, every star, every galaxy, everything. I would argue that all of it sat in darkness as the perfect Christ, the sinless and the holy Christ, was consumed in the wrath of God while he hung on a tree that he himself created. He did that for his people. The Bible is very clear about that. He did that for those who would become Christians. He did that to make a way to God. There is but one way to the Father, and it is through his Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So look at me, think about this. This is why it's Good Friday. This is why we should literally be excited about that fact because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. We should be excited about that. We don't call it Bad Friday for a certain reason. Why? Because if Jesus did not die, there would be no way whatsoever that any of us who are Gentiles would make it to heaven. No way whatsoever in any way possible. We would die in our sins and we would spend forever away from the goodness, the mercy, and the love of God. And we would spend forever in the presence of his wrath in a place of great torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's good because Christ was slaughtered on a cross for our sin. It's a perfect thing, but it's also a heartbreaking and a soul-wrenching thing. So those of you who have children, fathom this for a second. Fathom your own child dying willingly for someone who wants to kill you. Think about that. For someone who hates you and rejects you and wants nothing to do with you. Now fathom your child is perfect and innocent in every possible way. And he looks at you and he says, you know what? I'm going to do this for them. I'm going to lay down my life for them. Even though they despise you, they sin against you, and they hate you. Because I love them. That analogy, that thought, will not even scratch the surface of the love that God has for us. That will not even come close to scratching the surface of the love that Christ has for us. There is no earthly analogy that could explain the monumental act of the cross in any way. We continue in our sermon text, Matthew 27, verses 50 through 54. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake... And the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. I want to draw two points from this last last section of text. Uh, First, Christ voluntarily gave up his life. Voluntarily. He did that on his own volition, his own desire, his own will. He gave up his life. Second, a Christ-hating and slandering pagan soldier saw the truth of Christ on the cross. Notice the the timeline the Bible puts forth. Uh, He was on the cross from the third hour, which would be 6 a.m. to the ninth hour. So that would be from between about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Darkness descended upon the earth from about 12 noon until Jesus gave up his life. I said that for a certain reason. Gave up his life at 3 p.m. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, well, let's, let's backtrack and actually talk about crucifixion in short. Uh, the whole means and methods behind crucifixion was to get you to essentially drown yourself in your own fluids. It became almost impossible for you to breathe when you were on the cross. You would suffocate, you would die. All right? And so in order to exhale, you had to stand up. In order to inhale, you had to come down. And so the whole time, whether you're going up or you're going down, you're either putting immense pressure on most of the nerves that are running through the nail that is now driven in between your two feet, your ankles, or you're pulling up on your wrists where most of the nerves that run to your fingers go through. Extreme pain up or down. That's why it was designed that way. There was no resting at all. And so it was this long, slow, arduous torture up and down, up and down, up and down until you had no strength to go up or down anymore. And that was how you died. But look at the text. We see in the biblical accounts that the legs of the other two robbers were broken so they could not stand up and breathe. Now this is in our parallel gospel accounts. They suffocated to death. But look at our sermon text, Matthew 27, 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Yielded up his spirit. Did it say someone took it away? Did it say someone stole it? Did it say someone beat him up and snatched it? No, it says he yielded it up. So here's the God of the universe literally yielding up his spirit. Giving up his spirit and choosing at the exact moment in which he would die. Think about that. Willing sacrifice. Willing. Active in his obedience to the will of the Father. Hmm. What did Jesus say? This is John 19, 30, verse B. Uh, In our sermon text, it says that, that he cried out with a loud voice. So what did he cry out right before he died? He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So now we have two gospel accounts recording the fact that Jesus gave his spirit up 
when he sat under the fullness of the weight of the wrath of God to absorb the punishment that was due sinners for their sin. Jesus willingly gave up his own life. I want you to see this logically for a second. Step away from the biblical text. Look back in through the lens of the Trinity on this event. God offering himself up on the altar of his own wrath towards sin by God himself. See how that totally takes away anything that has to do with man? Everything that has to do with the man. Everything. Now we know from reading uh, Matthew uh, 23, this isn't on the screen, but Matthew 23 clearly paints the picture uh, that Jesus Christ himself says essentially, what's greater, the temple or the gold that goes into the temple? He says the temple is, the, it sanctifies the gold. But he says what's greater, the altar or the sacrifice that goes on the altar? And he clearly very plainly says, very simply says, the altar is greater than the sacrifice. So here's the problem. Most, most places will say this. They'll say the cross was the altar. No, it wasn't. How could a piece of wood be greater than Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe? It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So what does that mean? That means that the altar couldn't have been made by man because if it was made by man, then something that man made was actually greater than God himself. That's foolishness. That's ridiculous. That's insanity. But God, being offered up on the altar of the wrath and the fury and the fire of God against wickedness and sin by God Himself. That right there is how you make atonement for sin. Once. And then you sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how you do it. Because here's the beautiful imagery. and We talked about this in Bible study a couple nights ago. What was the cross made out of? Wood. Step back into the Old Testament. What were the sacrifices that were put on the altar burned with? Wood. Perfect, unblemished, spotless lambs burned with fire, roasted with fire before God, and it would send up a pleasing aroma. Now here's Jesus Christ in the New Testament being burned alive in the wrath of God on a piece of wood. Beautiful continuity. Perfect symmetry with the Old Testament. Fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Ushering in the New Covenant. <laughs> he wanted to do this. Think about that. Jesus literally wanted to do this for us. That's why it's good. He wanted to provide a way for sinners, even those like Saul, listen, Saul, who tried to literally murder Christians, hunt them down, throw them in prison, and beat them for fun. Remember, he held the coats of, 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 of the people who literally stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the early portion of Acts. He wanted to kill Christians. And Jesus laid down his life for someone like that. A murderer and a God-hater. He wanted to draw people like that, people like us, into a saving relationship with Himself. And this is why it's good. This is why it's Good Friday. This is why it's beautiful and amazing and wonderful. 
we continue seeing the kind of the unfolding events in the story, the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Now, l- listen, let's go back. I'll go outside of uh, the Bible for just a second, but we'll look at uh, rabbinic Judaism uh, in Judaist, or, oh, goodness, I get so excited about this, Jewish tradition concerning the temple veil itself. Here's how they would test a single sheet of a multi-sheet veil that would literally block light out. It would hook a team of oxen up to one side. I think it was more than five, if I'm not mistaken. They would hook a team of oxen up to the other side, and they would have them pull apart. And if that one sheet failed, they would burn it and start over. Now this temple veil was made of sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet. Most people thought it was about 18 inches thick. 18 inches thick of sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet. Why? Because you're going to have to have something pretty thick to block out the manifest glory of God. Pretty thick. Considering Moses' face shone when he came off of Mount Sinai from the reflected glory of God. And here we see something that we know, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, close to 30 30 plus feet tall, ripped in half from top to bottom. And team of oxen couldn't do that, hitched to each other with one single sheet. This was an act of God. No man did this. It was a miracle. See a great earthquake with rocks being split, dead in tombs. They're coming back to life. They're entering Jerusalem. They're walking, talking. They're alive. And here in this final portion is one of the most beautiful examples of redemption that I think we see in the Bible. Think about what this man was involved with. Look at the soldier. Look at him. Look at this Roman centurion. Understand, he would have been an enlisted man, a leader of 100 enlisted soldiers. And he did not get this by uh, money, uh, by social connection, or by political advancement. Here's how the Roman centurion earned his position. He killed people. And he got better at killing people. And he watched his friends die. And he ascended the ranks until he was in charge of 100 of them. That's the type of man that this man was. Not a weak man. Not a trivial man and not one given to jokes or foolishness. A serious man. He was tested, tried, and resolved to advance the standard of Rome at any and all cost. And likely, understand I can't prove this definitively, but I would argue possibly from the text uh, that he was the commander of the unit that physically crucified Christ. So the job of literally killing Jesus fell at the feet of this guy. And we see his soldiers, possibly even he himself, gambling for the very garments, the clothes of Christ, at the foot of the cross. He may have been the one who presented Christ to Pilate in the scarlet robe and the crown of thorns that had been beaten into his skull. It was possibly this man who orchestrated that. But at least he was involved in some way. We see a man who biblically, definitively, was involved in the public mocking of Christ as he is hanging on a tree, say something very interesting immediately after Christ voluntarily gave up his life that is attributed to him and him alone in Mark's account. Truly, this was the Son of God. 
truly. Now, Calvin states, quote, It is wonderful. It is wonderful that an irreligious man who had not been instructed in the law was ignorant of the true religion should form so correct a judgment from the signs which he beheld. This comparison tends powerfully to condemn the stupidity of the city. For it was an evidence of shocking madness that when the fabric of the world shook and trembled, remember the earthquake, none of the Jews were affected by it except the despised rabble. Here he's meaning the soldiers. We continue, and yet amidst such gross blindness, God did not permit the testimonies which he gave respecting his son to be buried in silence. Not only, therefore, did true religion open the eyes of devout worshipers of God to perceive that from heaven God was magnifying the glory of Christ, but natural understanding compelled foreigners and even soldiers to confess what they had not learned either from the law or from any instructor. End quote. Who did they learn from then? Christ. Jesus Christ Himself. That's who they learned from. Now, I've spoken with many soldiers and many who are not even Christian that have a much more proper, if we want to say, biblical understanding of the God of the universe than many people who profess to be Christians. Now, I'm not saying actual Christians, but professors of Christianity. They have seen life. These soldiers have seen life. They have seen death. They have lived in relative luxury compared to the world. And also, they have lived in holes in the ground, in swamps, in caves, in bombed out buildings, in vehicles, in the desert. They've lived in very terrible places. You've seen the worst of the world and all that it has to offer, but here's one thing I really appreciate about soldiers that have been to combat. One thing I really appreciate about them. They generally aren't fake. Here's one thing I love about soldiers when they truly convert and understand truly, not just professing, when they truly convert. And this would expend to, to people, first, usually first responders, uh, you know, firefighters, uh, police officers, sheriffs, uh, deputies, so on and so forth. When these men who have warrior spirits convert, they usually bring that same warrior spirit onto the battlefield of the spiritual war that is raging all around them. They're trained not to give up and to simply roll over, and they all usually do the same thing. They typically speaking, typically, when they're engaged in spiritual warfare, they want to learn, they want to grow, they want to sharpen their swords and hone the edge of their tactics in order that they might be in a more effective weapon in the hand of the commander of the universe. They want to see a difference, they want to affect change, and they don't want to run away and do nothing. When a soldier really turns, and a soldier like this man in the biblical text, it means something. It's significant. Here in our text, a soldier turns. A fighter turns. A warrior turns. A human weapon turns. And he does something beautiful. He states the truest of all statements of Christ. First statement made about Christ after he sacrificed himself for sin. <laughs> the first statement of Christ after his death that we have recorded in the Bible. Truly, 
this was the Son of God. Bow with me. Jesus Christ is real. And Jesus Christ is alive. And Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven where He eagerly awaits the command to go, to depart, and to enter this world and establish a kingdom with which He will rule with an iron fist where everyone will pay homage to the Son lest in His wrath and His fury they perish in the way because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, as we look forward, at least in our calendar, to celebrating the resurrection of Christ, what joy it is to know that He is alive and that He is real, that He is risen, He is triumphant, and He is above and over all things. Father God, we love You. We praise You. What a great day it is. Because truly, this is the Son of God. Lord, it's in Your perfect and holy name we pray. God, we love You and we love Christ. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.